The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. It can be found on page 838 in the Black Bibles. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever an unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Rables, and uh, thank you, Katie. Uh, I don't. I, I noticed that during the first service, y'all may not know it. I actually uh, went to high school with Katie and with Rudy. We were all uh, in high school together. And what's really sad, I had no idea how good of a voice Katie had in high school. Um, I did know how awesome Rudy's reading abilities were, um, but uh, and they had no idea how awesome my hair was going to become. Um, so, uh, anyways, it's, it is actually really fun to see how God works in the lives of those uh, who you've been with for a long period of time. And so, uh, what a joy it is to be gathered together, uh, to be reminded of who we worship, and to be gathered around God's Word. So, as we turn to God's Word, if y'all would, let's pray now. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word, and as we consider it, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hands and feet to follow you. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen. About 50 years ago, an ordained Presbyterian minister named Fred Rogers recognized a need on public television. He realized that most of our children were being entertained with mindless drivel. Children's television shows, he thought, were largely uninformative uh, and useless, and he believed that very little care uh, for children's content communicated that children themselves were, very, uh, were valued very little. Um, and so if any of you are children in here, I want to say we value you greatly, uh, and Mr. Rogers valued you greatly. So he determined to make quality television for children his lifelong commitment to ministry. He desired to communicate to children in very real and careful ways that they would see that they actually matter in the world. He wanted children to know that their youth did not keep them from contributing to their neighborhoods and, and their overall neighborhood of, 
of the country or the world. And this week, in anticipation of the upcoming movie release, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers, there was a fantastic article in The Atlantic about Mr. Rogers and the challenge that his life and example presents for us in our day and age. The article talks about how most of us like the idea of Mr. Rogers. We love the idea of being nice to one another in a world of crazy politics or deplatforming or cancel culture. Even as we affirm that Mr. Rogers and his message are still are relevant uh, for us and significant today, however, our neighborhoods, so to speak, are actually becoming more divided and less cordial than they ever were. No one really wants to imitate Mr. Rogers. No one really wants to live as he lived. And the article talks about, uh, written by a man named Tom Junud, how he became friends, unlikely friends, later in life with Mr. Rogers. And he writes, I'm often asked what Fred would have made of our time, of what is generally called our polarization, but is in fact the discovery that we don't like our neighbors very much once we encounter them proclaiming their political opinions on social media. He goes on to say that the question that people ask is actually less about Fred Rogers and how he may have responded to our cultural moment. The question actually has far more to do with us. In our current setting, we love the idea of Fred because he stands for the kindness that we kind of want, but we're not willing to live with this type of radical kindness ourselves. Indeed, the author reminds us that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood It was amazing, but it was short-lived. He writes that Fred lost. He knew what he was up against. He knew from the start that the fragmentation of the jump cut would lead to the fragmentation of everything else. And that the fragmentation of everything else would lead us to the first and final temptation, the temptation of hatred. He lost because of the great conceit of the internet. That is, that it has unveiled and unmasked us. That it shows us as we really are and our neighbors as they really are and that hate is more viral than love. As amazing of a man as Fred Rogers was, as as amazing of, of a Christian man as he was, his human efforts to change the world were short lived. Right? Though he longed to see our world, our neighborhoods, our cities change, he couldn't make it happen. Even as with as big of a platform as Mr. Rogers actually was. Fred Rogers lost because there is no way for human effort alone to repair our completely broken world. A world where sin has torn us apart relationally and physically. Mr. Rogers lost because if it is up to man alone to fight for sin, uh, to fight against sin and brokenness, we will always come up short. We cannot eradicate the sin in ourselves, the brokenness in our relationships and the evil of the world. But Mr. Rogers' dream is actually the dream of the kingdom of God as well, right? Mr. Rogers, his neighborhood is but a shadow of the neighborhood that God has come to bring and is bringing in Christ. Jesus is dealing with our world in its fullness, and he is bringing about an even greater neighborhood than we could ever imagine. He's making us into a new neighborhood. And that is what we're going to look at this morning. First, that Jesus is making us into a new neighborhood. 
Second, that Jesus is reconciling us as neighbors. And finally, that Jesus gives this neighborhood a mission to go out into the world. Well, let's first look at that point of Jesus is making us and turning us into a new neighborhood. At this point in Mark's gospel, we've reached a transition, and you may have even noticed it as, as we read, there wasn't a whole lot that was going on in the scripture reading. There weren't sort of the, the more uh, rich stories that we have seen earlier in the gospel of Mark, and that's because this is a transition in Jesus' ministry. He's completed one cycle of ministry, and he's about to take part in a new cycle of ministry for the next three or so chapters. He's healed people who needed healing, Jesus has up to this point. And he's begun, continue, uh, he's begun and continued to preach the good news of the gospel that God reigns. This ministry has obviously made him very popular as we read, right? People were flocking from north, south, east, and west just for the opportunity to touch them, for the chance that they might be healed from the things that they need to be healed from. Jesus, in a short period of time, has become the celebrity of Galilee as people follow him everywhere. And beginning in verse 13, Mark tells us that Jesus goes up the mountain. Now, Jesus is likely still in the Sea of Galilee area. And for any of y'all who've been to that region, you know there are no mountains in that area. It's likely just a hill at best But Mark calls it a mountain for a theological purpose. He's helping us to draw a connection between what is going on here in Mark's gospel and what took place at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. Mark gives us the image of a mountain because what Jesus is doing in commissioning his disciples goes together with what God promised the people of God at Mount Sinai. It was in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai that God spoke to Moses about his promises. That through Moses and the Israelites, God would fulfill the promises that he gave to Abraham. He would not only make Abraham's family into a great nation, but he would give them a land to inherit. So Exodus 19 says that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In that passage in Exodus, God called Israel to be his people. But as we know in the Israel story, they fail in their obedience. They weren't able to keep the covenant, and it's, what, it's into that context that Jesus comes. Right In Mark's gospel, and actually in all the gospels, we begin to see how Jesus has come to fulfill the Israel story. He comes to keep the covenant that Israel failed to keep. Jesus is the obedient Israel. He is bringing God's perfect kingdom to earth, and he is establishing a holy nation that is ultimately a fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Abraham. So as he's going up the mountain in Mark 3, Jesus calls 12 disciples, and that number is important. These 12 disciples represent the totality of Israel. As this mountain is an echo of Mount Sinai, and as these 12 men are an echo of the 12 tribes of Israel, 
These echoes combined announce to all around Jesus that he is doing something world-shattering. He's doing something very intentional. The old Israel, yes, it has fallen short of keeping God's covenant. And the old Israel, right, these former 12 tribes were living with the fruit of their failure. In fact, most of the 12 tribes had failed so spectacularly that they were conquered and now have subsequently been living as, as a conquered people for upwards of 500 years. Only a few of those tribes now, uh, just Judah and Benjamin and only slight a part of the tribe of Levi, even desire in this context to live as God's chosen people in the land. Yet these tribes at the time of Jesus still have no autonomy, even the ones who are trying to live righteously. They are still a conquered people. So many of the religious leaders of the time period believe that, that there's a way that we can gain control. The way to prosper in the land is to remember that promise that God gave in Exodus. We need to keep our covenant obligations to try again to fulfill them. These leaders we often refer to them in the Gospels as Pharisees. They tried harder than everyone else to abide by the law of God. They tried so hard that they actually even created new laws, laws upon laws to help them keep from ever breaking the laws of God themselves. So for example, if we're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, then we're definitely not allowed to travel on the Sabbath. So to keep ourselves from traveling on the Sabbath, we're going to say, no more than 3,000 steps from the city are you even allowed to walk on the Sabbath. You see sort of how it works, laws upon laws upon laws. It's in that context that Jesus comes and begins to call the people of God in a way that the Pharisees never would have expected through an obedience that they could never possibly achieve. So Jesus is making a new people and as we look at the disciples, what do we notice about them? We've already seen uh, the calling of the first five disciples earlier in the Gospel of Mark we notice that these men are remarkably unremarkable people. They are fishermen and they are tax collectors. It's not even that they don't really have anything to bring to the table, so to speak. It's that under normal circumstances, these men are actually a liability toward reconstituting the people of God. The first disciples are not the special covenant keepers. They were not the ones who earned God's favor in any way. Yet these are the ones that God called. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus desired them. Why? What about them did he desire? Was it their skill? Was it their abilities? Maybe their kindness or their relational connections and social capital that they could offer? No. There was nothing about them that was deserving. There was nothing about them that was desirable, but Jesus desired them because of his great love. The disciples did nothing to earn it, but Jesus in his love pursued them and called them. And like the first disciples, we don't have anything that we bring to the table for Jesus. And I like saying that about as less than you like hearing it. I love believing that I have something to offer God and his kingdom. That he chose me to be a part of it because I could do awesome things for Jesus. 
But that's not true. There is nothing about me or you that is inherently desirable. Yet Jesus calls us based upon not our own righteousness, but his alone. He calls us not based on anything that you or I bring to the kingdom of God, but on what Jesus alone brings. And yet we are still a people who strive too much. We strive to earn favor with friends. We strive to, strive to earn a good reputation to have people to sit with in the lunchroom or in the cafeteria. We try to earn favor so that we can get into the right schools and have the right jobs and for the right interviews and ultimately maybe even the right clubs. But Jesus calls his people, he calls you and me despite our best and consistent striving. He calls you and me despite the fact that we are actually liabilities to the kingdom of God. He calls you and me because he is that gracious and he is that holy. He's building a new Israel and he has invited misfits like you and like me into this kingdom. So I want to urge you this morning to stop. Stop trying to earn favor with God or with others, particularly other Christians. Stop trying to earn favor with the world. You are loved you are pursued. You who are like the immoral tax collector, right? You who are like the poorly educated fisherman. You who are like the rebellious zealot. Jesus desires you. Not because of what you bring to the table. He doesn't desire you because of how awesome you are. Although you're awesome. He desires you because he loves you. Stop striving and know that you are loved. It's through his love and by his pursuit that he is molding us into his people. And we are a people who are called to live together in this world and the next. We're a people who are called to be brought together into God's neighborhood. Now what does it mean for us to live together in that neighborhood? And that brings us to the second point. That Jesus is reconciling us as neighbors. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus gathers a group of disciples who have very little commonalities and who are pretty unremarkable. But what is significant about this group of men is not, not how insignificant they are. Mark makes it very clear that what is significant about the disciples is that the lives they have prior to following Jesus are not just dissimilar. They're antithetical to one another. It's not just that Jesus calls men from different areas of Judea or from different professions. These men before following Jesus would have had actually many reasons to truly hate one another. They would have been enemies with each other. As Mark lists the men in chapter 3, he gives many of them a new name. So a picture of, of their new lives following Jesus. Although we, we read in chapter 2 how Jesus called Levi the tax collector, to be his disciple. Here in chapter 3, Levi is given a new name. He's now Matthew. Before Matthew slash Levi became Jesus' disciple, he was a tax collector. And as Clay told us a few weeks ago, that doesn't just mean he worked for the Roman Empire equivalent of the IRS. No, a, a tax collector at this time was essentially a government-backed thief. And no matter what you think of the IRS, I promise you, this is worse, right? 
He didn't just work for the government as a government-backed thief. He worked for the Roman government, the occupiers of the land and the enemies of the Israelites. He was a double traitor. So you can imagine how the other disciples must have felt joining the same, uh, joining the same team as this traitor. One disciple in particular, Simon the Zealot, would have had a very difficult time accepting Matthew. In our passage that we read this morning, it called Simon the Cananean. He's referred to in the Gospel of Luke as the Zealot. They essentially mean the same thing. In the time of Jesus, there were a few different factions of the Jewish people. There were the Pharisees who we talked about earlier, those who were desiring to bring God's kingdom through obedience and devotion to the law. There were the Sadducees who were the powerful, kind of the politically minded priestly class. And then there were the Zealots who sought to win back their freedom through rebellion and through an actual physical revolution, military revolution. And so when Mark tells us that Simon was a zealot, he is telling us something very important. He's telling us that Simon, prior to the calling of Jesus, belonged to a rebellious group who desired to kill the Romans and any who worked for the Romans. It's not clear entirely whether Simon was, was formally involved with the zealots but, or whether he was a sympathizer, but, but this detail helps us to see the larger picture. Somehow, by God's grace, he is calling his people to live together. Somehow, in God's neighborhood, mortal enemies become neighbors. Somehow, in God's neighborhood, political opponents become partners in the kingdom of God. Maybe the natural conflict that would have existed between Matthew and Simon the Zealot doesn't seem that significant. It might feel like these two men, just, they just come from, from different camps, but, but they could easily just work it out. You know, sort of like an Aggie and, and a Longhorn, right? They write songs against one another, they rib one another, but at the end of the day, they'll shake hands and be kind of polite with one another. That comparison, which I know feels very real for some of you, is far too tame for what's going on here. A better comparison would be that Jesus has called an African-American and a white nationalist into his group of 12. At the very core of their identity and everything they value prior to coming to Christ, these men are opposed to one another, violently opposed. What is it that can unite enemies? It has to be something even greater than they could ever imagine on their own. God's reign, God's forgiveness of sin, and setting everything in this world to rights again. That is far superior to the good life that they want to procure for themselves. God's reign is better than Israel's reign like the zealot would have hoped. God's reign is better than wealth or independence like the tax collector may have hoped. And the love of God himself has so filled their hearts that the forgiveness they have received is now extended to each other. They have been reconciled to God and now they are manifesting that reconciliation to each other. I think it's important for us to apply this picture of reconciliation to our lives in two ways, both individually and also corporately, communally. If you are a Christian this morning, then you have been forgiven by Christ. You have placed your faith in him 
and his promise of the good life that has come through his reign and hopefully has captured your attention. The same power of God's love that has transformed the would-be enemies of Matthew and Simon is the same good news that is at work in you and in me right now. We have been forgiven much. We have been forgiven our wrong deeds, our wrong hearts, our evil deeds, and even our own attempts to try and cover up all of those wrong deeds with good deeds. God has made all of us right in Jesus if we are united to him in faith. That forgiveness should transform our lives. We have been forgiven much, therefore we are to forgive much in others. Forgiveness is something that we are called to do. But it actually, it doesn't require the other offender to be sorry in order for us to forgive. Nor does it require the other offender to be present for forgiveness to take place. Forgiveness can happen entirely in our own hearts. But reconciliation is more than forgiveness. Reconciliation is the ending of an estrangement between two peoples or two parties. Reconciliation is the sewing together of what was rent apart. Reconciliation is something more than forgiveness. It's not something that we are commanded to do, but it is a picture of of what God is doing for the future that he is painting for us. It's okay for us to forgive someone and not to reconcile. I want to make sure that's clear because reconciliation requires that both parties be willing to own their own part in the relational schism. It requires both parties to be willing to take the necessary steps to work it out. And it requires that both parties commit to this long process of rebuilding the trust that was broken. I have to say that personally I've witnessed though very little reconciliation in the church. Whether that's individually, I've seen people leave the church and never want to reconcile with those. I've seen churches split over uh, things far less than doctrinal statements. And in those episodes we often have no desire to reconcile with one another. I think that one of the many reasons for that is because we just don't have a big enough view of God's kingdom and the action that he took to reconcile to us. When we have been harmed, it's far easier to leave one church and just go to another one than to do the hard work of restoring a broken relationship. It's far easier to ghost someone, right, than to go through the process of reconciliation Yes, it is true we can't force reconciliation to happen on our own because it has to be consensual. But unless we're willing to try, it won't happen either. Beyond individual reconciliation, the other type that I mentioned is the need for us to communally reconcile. God calls us as Christians to be reconciled amongst ourselves in large groups as well. Right? Like those churches that split And while this topic is largely overplayed in American politics, I would say that it is rather underplayed in the church. Because given the church's history of separating along racial and cultural lines, not even just based upon language, but based on true and real history of racism and cultural discrimination, racial reconciliation in the church should be something that we all strive for. 
Our passage this morning is both an example and a call to acknowledge where we have divided ourselves from other believers, whether those divisions be cultural, racial, or political. We have divided ourselves from our fellow disciples in Christ. We need to acknowledge the complicit nature of racism in the American church. We must acknowledge the political hatred or the denominational strife in the American church. We must acknowledge the distrust of of foreigners in the American church. And then we need to seek reconciliation. It's not easy. It's hard to put ourselves in a posture to be reconciled to others. And it's even harder to put ourselves in a posture to admit wrongdoing. But the more we understand what our Lord had to give up for us to be reconciled to him, the more we ought to be willing to do that with one another. So earlier I told you all to stop, right? To stop striving for righteousness based on moral efforts. But now if you are in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, I want to ask for you to do something in faith. Do seek reconciliation. Seek it with someone that you are individually estranged from. Seek it communally. Seek it whether you are the offender or whether you have been the one who has been offended. Seek it because our Lord has reconciled you to himself through his son Jesus. In 1970, a man named Wilbur Reese wrote a poem called Three Dollars Worth of God. Have any of y'all ever heard of that poem? No? All right. We got one in here. So this poem, it's it's actually, it's a very heart-wrenching poem that illustrates the temptation that we all have to want just a little bit of God in our lives. Not too much. Not too much to make me do anything challenging, just enough to make me happy and maybe socially respectable. Reese writes this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Jesus Christ has given up everything for the sake of his people. And all that he asks for those who follow him is is everything in return. We can't just have $3 worth We have to have the whole thing, and through the whole Jesus Christ, we are made wholly transformed into his likeness. And that gets us to our third point, that we, as those who are reconciled to God, as his neighborhood, we are given a mission to the world. When Jesus calls these disciples, he appoints them uh, to follow him, to preach, And to cast out demons. They don't just sit at his feet all day learning about Jesus or Jesus' teachings. Uh, As the representatives of new Israel, as the representatives of the new people of God, they're called to preach. And they're called to cast out demons. They're called to act. Their preaching tells others the good news that God reigns. And they embody the good news in action as they cast out those demons, demonstrating That these lives and this world is God's. He has the authority and he reigns. 
So all disciples, the neighborhood of the people of God, are called to bring the message of reconciliation to the world. It is in Christ that we can be reconciled to God and to one another. It is in Christ that we can be reconciled to the world and even to creation itself. Reconciliation with our enemies is possible because of Jesus and we are to make it manifest in the world both by how we live and what we say to others. What would it look like for you to bring the ministry of reconciliation to others? To whom do you need to proclaim this good news? Certainly our world longs for reconciliation, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Certainly our world longs for peace, but they're looking to the wrong sources for it. The easy thing for us to do would be to stand on the sidelines and kind of call out non-Christians for turning to political solutions or economic solutions or behavioral solutions. Solutions that we know will always fall short if they are outside of Jesus. But Jesus has called his disciples, he has called you and me to follow him into this world. He's not called us to sit on the sidelines and to judge others, but rather to proclaim the good news that Jesus reigns. That political attempts at reconciliation will never transform the world because only Jesus will transform the world. He will bring peace. Jesus has called us to show others that that merely behavioral changes do not bring about the neighborhoods that we all long for. Only in Christ do we learn to love and care for others. Only in Christ are our lives changed. Only in Christ do our enemies become our neighbors. So today I ask you all to stop, to stop living self-righteously and to live by faith. We live by faith as we pursue, as we follow Jesus in faith, as we pursue one another in faith and proclaim the good news to the world in faith. Jesus has called us to be a new people and yes, as the author I proclaimed from the, from the Atlantic, as he wrote, he in a sense is right because Mr. Rogers lost. But insofar as he was living out the gospel, insofar as he was proclaiming it in the lives of those who are near to him, by faith, he was rightly, uh, he was actually winning. For in Christ we are a new people who can be reconciled to the world and to one another. It's because of him and his call that we can look with hope that our God is ultimately making a new neighborhood. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. Lord, that though we bring nothing to the table, though we are liabilities for what you are doing in this world, Lord, you have pursued us. You love us and you call us. Father, give us the strength and the encouragement. Give us the new heart to follow after Jesus and to proclaim that good news into the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.